following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Oh, that was loud. Final week of uh, introduction for Mark. If you're confused by that statement, thinking the last week was the final week of introduction, let me just quickly explain. Last week was part two of a two-part message, but was not the final part of the introduction, Okay. <laughs> There was one more part coming. It was always coming. Uh, we're going to do one other thing. But as we have done the past two weeks, we're going to begin again today by reading just the first verse, which again will be more important than you may realize at this moment. And then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So now I will put it up there and you can read it. First one of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we have already learned a lot, I feel, from just seeing how your story is the central story of the scriptures, the central story of human history, how these words we're about to read are, are so much more than what we unfortunately think of them as so often. And so we come again this week in an attempt to lay a really, really good foundation on which we can build our understanding of the Gospel of Mark. I pray that you will help us do that today, that you will open our eyes to understand these things, to see their importance and significance as we work through this book, so that as we continue doing so, as we begin really in earnest next Sunday, you will use that time, this time even, to do a great work in our hearts as we come face to face with Jesus. And so we give you this time, we ask your Spirit's help, in your name we pray. Amen. Well, today is apparently Survey Sunday for me. I've been doing surveys all day long, surveys and core training. I'm going to do a survey now, and everyone has to participate uh, with us in this little effort. I need everybody who is a firstborn child, firstborn, not only child. I'll get to you guys uh, in a moment, all those crazy only child people. I'll get to the, them in a moment. I want everyone who is a firstborn child to raise your hand and put it up nice and high. Okay. No, no decimals, just first. All right. Okay, these are all the selfish people, controlling people. Put your hands down. <laughs> I need anyone who is a middle child. And by middle, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I think there's going to be some counseling later on that one. I don't know. There's an issue there. Jeremy's like, I don't know her. Uh, well, middle child being defined as anyone between not first and not last. Okay, so you could be second, you can be eighth. I don't care what your number is. You're somewhere, not first, not last. If you're a middle child of some sort, raise your hand or jump for joy, whatever you want to do. Okay, put your hands down. These are all the uh, introspective people. And then thirdly, if you are a la or, yeah, last-born child, you're the, you're the baby, raise your hand. These are the spoiled ones. You're just around for the party. All right, and finally, the worst group of all, all the only children, raise your hand. I am not the only, only child in here. Aren't you an only child, Andrew? No. Oh. Where? Who else? One, Dave Jones. Is he in here? Oh, that's it. I'm alone. Okay, two. I'm sad now. All right, well, thank you. The reason I wanted to know this is because I was doing some reading this week in, um, you know, all the theories that people write about birth order and how it affects you. And I'll, I'll be honest, I don't buy into all that is said about this particular subject. However, I do think there may be a little bit of truth in it. According to uh, some theories that are prevalent today, firstborn children tend to be reliable, conscientious, structured, 
cautious, there's laughter, laughter already, cautious, controlling, and achieving. Middle children tend to be people pleasers, somewhat rebellious. They thrive on friendship, <laughs> thrive on friendship, have large social circles, and are peacemakers. Last-born children, last-born children tend to be fun-loving, uncomplicated, manipulative, outgoing, <laughs> attention-seeking, self-centered, and then finally, only children, only children tend to be mature for their age, <laughs> perfectionists, perfectionists, conscientious, diligent, leaders, unusually attractive, <laughs> good dancers, not great with power tools, excellent golfers, and creatively funny, okay? Now, <laughs> I've lost the group already. Let me, let me say again, I'm not sure that I, I completely buy into this whole birth order theory, but I do think there could be some truth to it for sure. I think, uh, for example, with uh, middle children, that they do seem to come across to me as the forgotten children is what I, I tend to call them because they're not first, so they don't get that one-on-one -on -one attention with mom and dad, and they're not last, so they're not the babies, and they don't get all that, but they're, they're in the middle. They're kind of forgotten on some things, and so I call them that. Well, if you will allow me to draw an analogy between birth order theory and our gospel uh, study of the gospel of Mark here, I would like to point out that the gospel of Mark is clearly clearly one of the forgotten children. He's, he's very much a middle child. Historically speaking, Mark is the least studied, least preached on, least quoted, least researched of all of the four Gospels, historically speaking. And guess which two Gospels are the most studied, most preached on, and most quoted of all of them? Matthew and John. Okay, very good. So you've got the, the first and the last. Matthew uh, was, funny enough, for, uh, as we talk about this, funny enough, for many of years, considered to be the very first gospel written. And because it was written to a Jewish audience in a very Jewish context, and because of how it's, it's structured, it was given the priority uh, for much, much of, of church history in terms of church fathers and others who would preach and study on it. In fact, Mark wasn't even included in the annual readings through the, through the New Testament that the church did for thousands of years. And then John, of course, on the other hand, being the, the last gospel written chronologically and also last in, in the canon, was also given a great deal of emphasis throughout church history and studied by a great number of people. And so it was that these two gospels, Matthew and John, were by far the most emphasized. You can kind of put them neck and neck as number one in the list of, of how gospels were ranked and treated throughout church history. Luke was a middle child too, but but he's more popular, okay? He was more popular than Mark. He had more friends. And so he is a close second. He's not quite where Matthew and John are, but he is a close second. But poor Mark, poor Mark. Mark wasn't even a close third, okay? Mark was really genuinely ignored in many, many senses by a lot of people throughout church history. That is, until about the past hundred years or so. Over the past 100, 150 years, as scholars began to do more work in uh, Mark, studying it, researching it, finding more information about the New Testament and drawing all that together, many scholars came to believe that Mark was actually, get this, the firstborn. That he was actually the first child, uh, so to speak, of our gospel accounts, that he was older than Matthew and, and therefore deserved a, a stronger emphasis. And that ended up changing the way that Mark has been studied ever since. 
for, for the past hundred years or so, there has been so much material written about the gospel of Mark that even if you were an expert in nothing but Mark, if that was all you studied for your whole life, it is doubtful that you would be able to read all of the research and material that has come out in the past hundred years on this one book. That's good for us because what that means is as we are launching into this study, we are launching right into uh, the, what's the forefront of New Testament research and scholarship, and that gives us lots and lots of resources here at our fingertips. And so even though historically it is the forgotten gospel, from a purely modern perspective, past hundred years or so, it has been front and center. And so we're going to take advantage of that. We want to really dig into this material so that we can understand Jesus' life and ministry like we've never understood it before. And to do that, we're going to, we're going to do something today that we've done at the beginning of every one of our other book studies. I, I think it's a, an important step. I think it's a critical step both for us as, uh, in this preaching context, but also for you personally in your own study of the scriptures. I think we should always begin a study of a book with a book introduction. How many of you remember us doing book introductions in other books? Excellent. That's what I thought. So a, a book introduction, I'll explain to you since you don't remember, is a technical term. It is a study you do that answers specific questions about any book of the Bible that you happen to be studying at that particular moment. Questions like, who wrote it? Who was it written to? When was it written? Why was it written? What are the major themes or, or ideas you see in the book? What's the style, the genre of writing? Questions like that. You would be amazed, I think, at how much you will gain from doing that kind of study, just personally. I would, I would strongly encourage you to do that in your own personal Bible study. If you're reading in Romans, take a day, take two days, take a week, and spend time just answering those basic, basic questions. It will revolutionize the way that you read Romans. You'll never read it the same way again once you understand who's writing, who they're writing to, and why. The same is going to be true for Mark. And so today, that's what we're going to do. Okay? We're going to just work through these basic questions to come to a firm and sound understanding of who and what this book is. What is it about? What's its heart? What, what are we going to find in its pages so that we can understand it better, better? And so without further ado, let's begin. Question number one, who wrote Mark? And if you're thinking, I hope uh, you look at the question and think that the answer is inherent in the question, and yet I would say that it isn't. We call this book the gospel according to Mark. Well, doesn't that mean, obviously, that we know Mark is the author? Well, yes and no. It, it's important to recognize as we begin that the book never claims to be written by Mark. If we read verse 1 just a moment ago, and unlike most of Paul's letters or other people's letters, he doesn't begin by saying, Mark, writing this book, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, not only does he not begin with his name, his name is not going to be found anywhere at any point in this writing. As far as we know, the author never mentions himself at all. Now, some people, as they get further into Mark, run into this scene here in the Garden of Gethsemane that they think might be a veiled reference to the author. You might be familiar with it. It's in chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. It says that a young man followed him, Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, this is it. Mark's the only person who records this, this little comment, this very strange comment about what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so some people have read that and go, well, 
Maybe that's Mark. Maybe this is him, and he's just kind of giving this little note about him in a very <laughs> anonymous kind of way because of the circumstances. Uh, could that be true? Maybe, but we don't know. It, it could be that this, is, this guy is Mark, but there'd be no way to prove it. It could just as well be some other random person, and you've been in traumatic situations before, no doubt, and remembered odd details things that stood out to you at that moment. I remember when my, my dad died, I, we were in our apartment in the hallway and I was distraught. And so I asked Jamie to give me something to do. And she gave me a load of towels and told me to fold them. <laughs> but I can see it so vividly, just as vivid as anything else of that memory, sitting on the floor in the hallway of our apartment folding towels. It's an odd memory to have connected to that very traumatic event, but it's it's vivid, and, and for Marcus, he's writing these stories down. It may just be one of those kind of events, something very vivid that stood out at the moment because of the trauma of what was going on. Jesus is being taken away, and so he includes it, but it doesn't really matter whether this is the author or not. We can't prove it. My point here is that the book itself is anonymous. Not only is the book anonymous, though, the scriptures never later on come back and say that Mark wrote this gospel. So when you take all that together, we say, okay, we have no biblical way of knowing who wrote this book. So I hope you have a question in your mind. Why do we call it the gospel according to Mark then? Well, the answer to that question comes from church history, church tradition. And before I go any further, let me just acknowledge something. Church history is not scripture. Got it? Teaching church history right now in our core training hour, and I thoroughly love church history. I, I get excited about church history. It's a lot of fun for me, but church history is not scripture. It is not authoritative. It is not infallible. It is not perfect. In fact, quite the opposite, it is very often imperfect. It is very often filled with errors and lies and problems, some intentional and some not. And so when we study church history, we always kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. Not 100% sure, but, but we can look at things and, and, and see if there's anything helpful for us in a particular question, particularly with one like this. I think church history can be very helpful for us as long as we understand its proper place. It's interesting to me that as you look into church history for an answer to this question of who wrote this gospel, the, the church fathers, the early church, are nearly unanimous in saying that it was a guy named Mark. I could show you a number of things to prove this, but I'm going to show you just one. It's the best example, the most quoted example you will find if you were to go and do your own study of this. It's by a guy named Papias. Nobody knows his name, but it's a guy named Papias. He lived from probably around AD 70 to AD 155. So he's really, really early, really early in the church. And he's writing apparently in reference to questions about this gospel. And here's what he says. He says, and the elder, who is John the elder, not John the apostle, it's another guy, John the elder, and the elder also said this, Mark, being the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately all that he remembered, but not, however, in order, of the things that were spoken or done by our Lord. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but later, as I said, he followed Peter, who provided instruction according to the need, but not as to make an arrangement of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark does not err in anything in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For he was attentive to one thing, not to leave out anything that he heard or to make any false statements in them. Now, this is an interesting quote, I think. There's a number of things, I think, that stand out. One, Papias confirms that somebody named Mark wrote this gospel. He doesn't say which Mark. He just confirms that somebody named Mark did it. 
Number two, he confirms that this guy, Mark, who's writing this gospel, is not a follower of the Lord himself. He wasn't there with him in the garden, which probably makes that passage in chapter 14 of uh, little importance to who wrote it. He wasn't there with him, but he was a disciple of Peter. And so it has generally been understood throughout church history that the gospel of Mark is in some respects the gospel of Peter. It's a record of Peter's teachings about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ written down by a guy named Mark. Number three, he tells us that this gospel is a collection of what he remembered about Peter's teachings of the Lord. Meaning there might have been more things that Peter said, but these are the ones that Mark remembered. Number four, he recognizes that not everything is in perfect chronological order. Which I will come back to this later. Just remember, the purpose of a gospel is not to be a history necessarily. It is to be historical. It is to be accurate in what it says. But it is not necessarily a history of everything in the perfect order. Mark is simply writing on the stories that he remembers and he's put them in a generally chronological order, but even Papias recognizes it's not, not 100% in order. And then number five, he affirms that nothing was left out or recorded incorrectly. Now, as I look at all of this, along with the rest of the evidence you see throughout church history, two things give me a great deal of confidence that we can say that Mark is the author of this gospel. Number one, nearly the entire early church confirms this. Like, we're talking 99.9999%. There might be like one guy somewhere who doesn't, but everybody else does. And that is weird. You may, if you don't understand church history or get it, it never agrees on anything, hardly, okay? There's like half the people think this, and then 10% think that, and 20% this way, and they're all over the place. To find unanimous agreement on anything is so rare that when you see it, you're going, wow, this is, this is special, this is unique. It, it must be true, I believe that genuinely, that a guy named Mark wrote this gospel. The second reason I think we can believe it is because they attribute it to a guy named Mark. Who's Mark? Mark's the most common name or one of the most common names in the Roman world. And if you wanted to write a false gospel and lie and make people believe that you actually knew something, wouldn't you claim a little bit more popular name than like Bob or Joe? No offense, Bob. Bob or Joe or... You wouldn't just pick some random common name and say, this is the gospel according to Bob. You would pick Peter or John or James or Paul or somebody who had some clout in the early church so people would believe you. That the church attributed this gospel to a lesser name, not a greater name, again, to me, shows that they genuinely believed that this gospel was written by a man named Mark. So when we ask who wrote the gospel of Mark, what's the answer? Mark, okay? As far as we know, it was Mark. What is less certain is which Mark <laughs> wrote this gospel. Is anyone, uh, anyone familiar with a Mark in the Bible? He's kind of a famous one. He's a cousin of who? Barnabas. Remember this guy, Barnabas? He, uh, he meets Paul in Antioch, and the two of them are going to go on a missionary journey. And so they bring Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, with them. Well, they're gone on the journey, and what happens to Mark? What does he do? He leaves. He quits the ministry. He abandons them on the way, and he goes home. And then Paul and Barnabas finish their journey, and they come back home, and they're getting ready to go out again a second time. And now Barnabas is like, hey, let's bring, let's bring Mark. And Paul is really excited about this idea, right? No. 
In fact, he's so not excited about it that these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, these good friends and ministry partners, get in such a fight over this that they can no longer minister together. They separate and go their own ways. Barnabas takes his cousin Mark, and they go off and serve Jesus over here. Paul goes over here, and and for years they're separated. Of course, we know later in life Paul has a change of heart. He asks for Mark. Mark is with him in Rome. We think he's also with Peter in Rome, so that's on the side of John Mark. But, but we don't know that this guy, John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, is the author of this book. You will read that. You will see that. I'm just saying to you, you don't know. It could be him. It might be another Mark. Whatever one it was, it doesn't really matter. To the best of our knowledge, this gospel is an accurate collection of the stories and teachings of Peter written down by a man named Mark, and we'll approach it as such. Question number two. Who was he writing to? And this will be, I think, a fairly quick one. He seems to be writing to Gentile Christians. Do you know the difference between, you know what makes someone a Gentile? It's that they're not a Jew, okay? So you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. He seems to be writing to Gentile Christians. Specifically, he seems to be writing to Roman Christians. Christians who are in the Roman Empire, who are under Rome's rule. And here's why I say that. He doesn't quote, there's a number of reasons, he doesn't quote the Old Testament a lot. as compared to the other Gospels because probably his audience doesn't know it. He likes to explain Jewish customs that were apparently unfamiliar to his readers. For example, look at uh, Mark chapter 7 here. He's talking about uh, one of the altercations that Jesus had with the Pharisees, and he writes this, that when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, parentheses, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, this is an odd thing to insert into your writing if your audience already understands Jewish culture. And so when you see, and you're going to see him do this a number of times throughout, throughout the, uh, the writing of, of this book, he's going to ex- say something, he's going to say, wait, okay, here, here's why this happens. And so that's another clue to us that he's probably writing to Roman Christians, a fact that will be important in just a moment. Uh, a third reason, he translates Aramaic and Hebrew phrases by their Greek equivalents. He doesn't speak uh, in any way, shape, or form in the language of the Jews. He only speaks with, in reference to the Romans. He incorporates a number of Latinisms. In his writing, you're going to find those along the way. And finally, and interestingly, he presents the Romans in a neutral and even a positive light throughout his gospel. It's interesting that at the end of the crucifixion, the greatest, the climax of the story, there is a character who is going to make the greatest confession of Jesus Christ that we're going to find in the gospel of Mark. It will not be a Jew. Who will it be? The Roman centurion. It will be the Roman centurion who will look up now at the cross in the story and say, truly, this man was the son of God. He he gives the emphasis at the end to this Roman centurion. And so as you take all of this together, it seems to become clear that this gospel is written for a Gentile audience, probably a Roman audience, so that they could understand the life and ministry of Jesus better. Question number three. That was a quick one. When and why was it written? When and why was it written? 
And normally you would, you would answer these questions separately. You cannot answer these questions separately in Mark. They have to, they have to go together because the way you answer one will affect the other and, and vice versa. There are two events, stick with me through, for this, there are two events that you need to understand that happened in the first century that will directly impact our answer to this question. One is the great persecution that occurred between AD 64 and 65. How many of you have heard of a, a guy, oh, he's a, a no-name guy probably, but a guy named Nero? Raise your hand. Generally positive or negative thoughts about Nero? Yeah, he, he wasn't the greatest of Roman emperors. Prior to AD 64, the church, the Christians in Rome, lived in relative peace. I'm not saying they never had problems. I'm not saying that life was always rosy. But generally speaking, things were okay. In AD 64, a great fire swept through the city of Rome, destroying 10 of its 14 wards, two-thirds of the city gone. And while the, the embers are still smoldering, smoke's still coming up, the people are walking out and looking at the remains of this great, once great city, and they begin to murmur amongst themselves, Nero did this. You see, Nero had been wanting to rebuild the city of Rome. It was falling into decline. He wanted to renovate it, do different things, but he wasn't getting a whole lot of traction. Well, guess what? If a natural disaster occurs and the city just happened to be destroyed, I guess he'd have to get his way. And so the people began to suspect very strongly that Nero had burned the city to the ground. Well, of course, Nero can't have this. He's a good politician. He has to deny it. He has to give alternatives. He, he begins by trying to just make people happy. He starts by giving them tax relief, giving them free food, and just outright denying that, the, that he had anything to do with it. But it doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. The, the tabloids are still running. The rumor mill is still going. He needs to provide an alternative solution. So he comes up with a great idea. He blames who? The Christians. The Christians did this. They're atheists. That was a common claim that they did not believe in the pantheon of Roman gods. And so they were atheists. They're atheists. They hate all humanity. They worship a criminal. They did this. And unfortunately, it worked. And for the next year, year and a half, the church went through the greatest persecution that had ever occurred up to that point in church history. It was a terrible, terrible time. He would, he would take believers and would wrap them in the skins of dead animals, tie them up, throw them into an arena so that dogs would rip them apart, thinking that they were prey. He, he would crucify them by the, the boatloads just up and down the streets all around the city so people could see. And most famously, he would take the believers, tie them to a stake in his garden, cover them in some kind of substance, and set them on fire to light his parties. I imagine those wouldn't be the greatest parties to attend, but who says no to Nero? It was a horrible, horrible time of persecution in the church, and this occurs about AD 64-65. That's the first event you need to know. Second, you need to know about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So this is all going on in Rome over here. The, he's blaming the Christians for the destruction of the city by this fire. A year later, over in Judea, the Jews, not the Christians, the Jews who are, who are tired of Roman occupation decide to rebel. And so they revolt. Big uprising within the city of Jerusalem all throughout Judea. And uh, Rome has to respond. 
So remember, things don't go as fast as they do today. We can't send in a carrier or drop some people off via helicopter. It takes a while for the army to muster and to get into Judea. They're there by AD 69. And by AD 69, they have squelched the rebellion in Judea and have besieged the city of Jerusalem. And that's only going to last for a few months because eventually they're going to break through, come in, destroy the city. Destroy the temple, burn it to the ground. Jesus said what about the temple in his lifetime? That not one stone would be left on the other. And that's exactly what the Romans did. They come in and completely destroy the city and everything changes. Now, two events, great persecution, destruction of Jerusalem. Here's why these two events matter. If you are a Roman Christian, there is no question but that these two events will dramatically change the way you live, the way you understand Christianity in the context of your world. And if you're the author of this gospel, it's going to change the way you write. If you are writing before, let's say, AD 63, 63 or before, everything's good. Life is good. Things are going on. It might not be perfect, but things are okay, and that's going to affect your outlook. But if you're writing from, let's say, AD 64 to AD 69, somewhere in here, There's been a terrible persecution, and people you know have probably died in some very horrible ways. And life is not so easy anymore. And being a follower of Jesus means something that it may not have meant just a year or two earlier. If you're writing AD 70 or after, it's going to be different again. What do we see in Mark? Well, I believe that Mark was written somewhere in that middle period, AD 64 to 69, and here's why. Mark seems to have a clear emphasis on the cost of following Jesus throughout his writings. Unlike some of the other gospel writers, he's going to talk about the fact that to be a disciple means something. It's going to cost you your life one way or the other. He includes comments about Jesus that don't seem to fit the way that many of us might think of him. He's not simply a mascot of our religion. He's the guy we put on the flag, so when we wave it at the, at the stadium, everybody knows which team we're rooting for. He's not simply the figurehead of a new religion. He's God, he's the Savior, and it will cost you to follow him and name his name. In Mark chapter 1, verse 13 and on, Mark records how Jesus himself had to battle Satan in the wilderness all alone. And that comment we were familiar with, that idea we're familiar with from the other Gospels. But remember, if you are a Christian going through persecution, you will will feel very alone. He's the only Gospel writer, uh, if you look at verse 14 there in chapter 1, if you're there, who records that Jesus was in the wilderness with, with who? With what? The wild animals. No one else includes this statement about wild animals in the in the wilderness. Why would Mark? Well, If you know loved ones who have been torn apart by wild animals in an arena, hearing that our Lord himself was with them in his temptation might be very comforting. In chapter 3, verse 31, Jesus was falsely accused of being in league with the devil. Well, in the Roman world, what were they being accused of? Of being atheists, of being idolaters, worshipers of a criminal, haters of all humanity. As Roman believers were being betrayed by friends and former church members, so Jesus was betrayed by one of his former disciples. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, Mark will remind us that Jesus predicted that persecution would come. That bearing our own cross would be an expected part of discipleship. Mark vividly records Jesus' suffering and his complete complete abandonment in his moment of need. One learns, though, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, that even though we may abandon Jesus, Jesus never abandons his followers. 
Even at the moment when the disciples are in the boat and they think they're about to die, here comes Jesus walking on the water. He was there. He was with them in their moment of need, even if they couldn't see him. And when he speaks, the winds cease, demons flee, dead rise. He is clearly in control under any circumstance. These believers, it seems, are under intense pressure and persecution. The church is under attack. Its leaders are dying. Again, church history tells us that Peter himself will die in this uh, persecution brought on by Nero. The, the leaders are dying. The eyewitnesses are going away. And so to preserve their account, to preserve the apostles' teaching, a guy named Mark comes along and he writes a gospel I think, intended to help these believers understand how they could live in these circumstances that weren't all that different from what Jesus himself went through. Question number four, what is Mark's style? Well, it's a gospel. It's a gospel. You, you know that one already. But let me point this out to you. It is not a history. I already said that. I'll expand on it now. Meaning that even though everything in this is historical and accurate, Mark never intended for this to be a historian's guidebook to understanding Jesus. And we can't come to it simply as a history book. It is a gospel. It is there to help us understand Jesus, not the events of Jesus' life. There's a big difference in the two. He wants you and I to read it and really see face-to-face who this man Jesus is. But it's also not a biography. He doesn't include the vast majority of Jesus' life, does he? Mark's, he doesn't even write about his birth. He just jumps right into the baptism. Baptism of John and temptation in the wilderness. He doesn't care about anything before the public ministry of Jesus. Why? If he's writing a biography, shouldn't he include that? Well, yeah, he should if he's writing a biography. But it's a gospel. It's designed to teach us about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and what that is going to mean for us if we will follow him. Everything is going to be structured around that. Everything, because that is what he wants us to know. And quite frankly, quite frankly, it's what we need. What, what we need. You see, we may not be going through the same kind of persecution that these Roman Christians were going through and for fear that our, our loved ones are about to be burnt at a stake in someone's garden to light a party. We may not understand the, the horrific things that are occurring, but, but for us... I really genuinely believe that the circumstances we find ourselves in today are even more compelling reasons why we need to consider what Mark has to say. There there is no question in my mind that the American church is fat and lazy. None. We, We celebrate our freedom and our prosperity, and in some ways that's good and right, but freedom and prosperity has made the church lethargic and apathetic. No No question about it. Americans like Jesus. Look at any poll. They like him for the most part as long as he doesn't interfere, or excuse me, as long as he doesn't require anything of them. They're good with church as long as it doesn't interfere with their lives and what they want to do. We want salvation that adds to our life, not a salvation, a message of salvation that will demand our death. That's that's out of the question. That's not salvation at all if it's going to demand our death. But here's Jesus telling his disciples that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to bear your cross. 
Here's Jesus telling his disciples that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to hate your mother and father, husband, wife, children, and come and follow me. Here's Jesus saying that if you want to be my disciple, you must lay down your life and find it in me. It's no wonder this Jesus isn't very popular today. Because he cuts across the grain of American culture where everything is supposed to be about us and our happiness and our joy and our fulfillment. He, he requires things that we don't want to do, things we don't want to pay. We want everything to be easy and cheap and we don't want anything to require too much commitment. Well, what Jesus has to offer is certainly not easy. And it is definitely not cheap. But it is free. Jesus' death was, without question, the most costly act this world has ever seen, was it not? As, as God himself come in human form, he, he hangs on the cross bearing the burden of our sins so that he could die in our place. And yet, what cost him much, he offers to all of us freely. Come to me, all you who labor heavy laden, I will give you rest we, we, he just wants us to believe, and we hear those words, just believe, and we think, well, that's easy. Well, it is, and it isn't, all at the same time, because Jesus expects that those who truly believe will never be the same again. Jesus expects that those who truly believe will pick up their cross willingly and gladly and follow him wherever it leads. It is not cheap, it is not easy, but it is free. And so even though we may not be going through the same kind of persecution the church endured here in, in Mark's time, why, why he's writing all the stuff that's going on around him, I think, I think we face a far greater danger today than they ever did. It's time for the American church to get serious about who Jesus is. It is time for our church, for Cornerstone, to get serious about following Jesus no matter what and no matter what where it leads, because if we do, we can be assured that God can and will do great things in our midst through the cross.